salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman, coming back at you behind the microphone once again. I'm very excited to be back here. You know, believe it or not, I mentioned this on my last episode, would you believe I'm still not 100%? When I got uh, really sick and went to the emergency room, I, I still have a lingering cough. I'm not... I mean, I, my energy levels are 100%. I've, I've never really felt uh, healthier with the exception of this cough that I still can't shake. It's been uh, it's been about six weeks now, and um, I'm just hoping that it'll clear up uh, by the time the, you know, springtime comes around in Florida because, you know, well, even I hope it clears out sooner. But I recall when I first moved down here, I had a lingering cough for two to three months because I, I, I lived in Massachusetts and... And it was the you know middle of, or it wasn't technically winter yet, but it was it was cold. All the all the uh, you know all all the trees had lost their leaves. Everything was dead. And I moved down to Florida, and boom, you know all, all of the flowers and the grasses are still green and everything. So it took me when I first moved down here. I had a persistent cough for about two or three months, and it's almost kind of the same way right now. Is that I've had this persistent cough and. I probably should go to the doctor, but I haven't yet because uh, I think it'll clear up eventually. I mean, I'm coughing less and less, but uh, but I still cough every now and then. So even even during the recording of this episode, I may have to pause it from time to time just to let out a cough because I don't want to cough in the microphone. That's going to spike up the uh, the audio and, and that's going to blast out your eardrums and I don't want to do that. So on this episode, I want to talk about the results of the Tel Aviv Grand Prix, the first uh, IJF World Tour Tour event of the year. There were some interesting results. Not everybody showed up to this event like I would have hoped, but that's completely understandable because the Paris Grand Slam is going to be coming up pretty shortly in February, and that's really the the, the biggest event uh, outside of the Olympics. It'll certainly be uh, the biggest event this year outside of the Olympics. No, no question about it. That's always a a huge draw for France. It's a huge draw where a lot of eyeballs take a look at the at the sport of judo around the world, and it's a big deal. And I expect all the biggest stars to show up for that event. But there was still some great action at the Tel Aviv Grand Prix, and I'm going to cover some of those results. I also want to talk about the New Year's message put out by the president of the Kodokan, uh, Haruki Umura. And I thought he brought up some very interesting points, a couple of things that I just was not even aware of, and, and I want to share that with all of you. Also, some interesting news coming out of Brazil with one of their uh, former Olympic judo champions. I thought this is a, a very important story that I'll cover. I also wanted to bring um, to everybody's attention that I'm going to add a new segment to the podcast, except I'm going to do it at the, at the tail end of uh, the the actual podcast I'm, it's it's going to be after the Gangnam Gangnam style closing credits I'm putting together a new segment called the after party and the reason why I'm doing that is a lot of people a lot of people that listen actually like when I talk about go off the rails and talk about different things like I'm watching whatever I'm watching movies or television things that I'm playing on the PlayStation things like that I decided to instead of doing that in the main section of the podcast I'm going to dedicate a section, I'm going to call it the after party, I'm going to dedicate um, that segment uh, specifically to talk about those topics because I love talking about those type of topics. And many of you people that listen, uh, we have a lot of things in common. So I, I just like dishing my opinions on those sorts of things. Let's see. And there's probably something else, one or two things that I want to cover, but I, I 
but it's it's escaping me and I it'll come to me as I'm doing the episode but I I know there's another thing that I wanted to cover and and once I figure it out I'll uh I'll uh, I'll let you guys know you know I I just recently turned 45 years old happy birthday to me and uh the memory's not quite what it was I mean it's I'm not I'm not like senile or anything but things don't uh don't just uh, you know my memory isn't as impeccable as it used to be and I think that largely has to do with just being so busy. I, I just, I got so much going on in my life. I, I uh, you know, I've gotten to the point with the podcast, I, I can churn them out when I can. I, I really wanted to t- stick to an every two week schedule, but it's really a challenge in the house. I mean, I, I got my own space to record, but it's not a recording studio. So all the ambient noise in the house and everything, it's very difficult for me to get some recording in. Without, without the dog barking or people using the microwave and all that kind of stuff not showing up on the podcast. So I have to pick and choose my times. And unfortunately for me, there isn't a whole lot of time when there's nobody in the house. So I manage and I do the best that I can. But, you know, I've been busy with training, been busy with work. I've been busy with just different band things for my kids and everything. You know, speaking of training, um, one thing I got for a gift as a birthday present were, was uh, this thing called Graps. Now, I know I've talked about this on the podcast before. They are essentially um, gloves that you wear that, that take the place of taping your fingers. And they've worked quite well for me. Now, I suppose if I had the best tape in the world um, and, and I used them every time, uh, uh, I would not have the kind of problems with tape that I that I experience whenever I'm doing, especially uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, but I put on the graps, and, and and I'm good to go with Spider Guard, man. It's My fingers don't really hurt anymore, it, it, and it's great. Now, the tips of my fingers, uh, the, the, the first knuckle on my fingers uh, do get uh, swollen from time to time, with the, even with the graps, because the, the, the bindings don't extend that far, but... But my my bigger knuckles are and my fingers are really well protected. It's it's a great investment. I think Graps costs about thirty bucks or so on Amazon or or from their main website. But it's it's um I know I, it's something that I've kept my eye on. I was hoping that my wife would get them for me as a birthday gift, and sure enough, she did. So I'm gonna be doing a lot of Spider Guard and De La Hiva Guard and and every other crazy guard that um. That I can possibly learn that that has a lot of sleeve control at the end of the sleeves because uh, the graps help, and so do uh, so does taking copious amounts of CBD. But uh, between that and graps, it's it, everything's going good. It, training's going well for me. I, I'm not. I, you know, I was just commenting to somebody the other day. This is really the longest stretch I've had in quite some time where. I haven't been injured. I, I'm not hurting. There isn't one thing going on in my body that hurts, um, you know, other than uh, other than finger joint soreness or whatever. But that's not that's not something I consider pain. I just it's just part of the deal. But uh, as far as like pulled muscles or pulled backs or pulled groins and you know none of that stuff. I, I got I got a little rib thing, but it's not stopping me from rolling hard or or doing judo. So uh, that's all that matters. If it doesn't slow me down, it's not an injury. And it's not uh, it's not anything that I should be concerned with. So, so everything's good to go with me in training. I, I'm I'm very pleased with myself. All right, so I want to get into a, a a pretty significant story for Brazil. Um, and this just came out just a couple of days ago. Uh, Olympic judo champion Rafaela Silva banned for two years for doping. Now I'm getting this off of uh, JudoInside.com, and of course you guys know if I've I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you're not reading judoinside.com, what the hell's the matter with you? 
All right, so continuing with the article, the Judo Olympic champion intends to fight the doping case at uh, CAS after testing positive for a banned substance at the Pan American Games in Lima. Uh, Rafaela Silva says she intends to fight her doping case at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The Rio... Uh, the 2016 Olympic champion tested positive for a banned substance, uh, phenoterol, during the Pan American Games. Um, the 27-year-old was stripped of a gold medal but claims her innocence during a press conference in September. All right, let's see if I got this right. Silver claimed innocence at a news conference, uh, reportedly saying that a young child with whom she had bodily contact uh, with at her training location used a substance. Uh, that's really bizarre. Let's see, the 27-year-old backed her Rio Olympic 57-kilo title by taking bronze at the World Championships in August uh, after the Pan American Games, but, but before a positive test was announced, Silver said that she had a clean drug test at the Worlds. Um, let's see, what else? Let's see, Silver claims uh, with, with her lawyer, I am fully confident that I, that I will prove that the substance phenylterol accidentally entered my body and that it was not used for sports performance purposes. Uh, we'll fight to the end of the of my dream for representing my country at the 2020 uh, Olympic Games because I know that I have done nothing wrong, and in the end, justice will prevail. Justice will pre prevail. Let's see. The Brazilian Judo Federation confirms that they're going to support her uh, by calling her an example on and off the mat and one of the greatest idols of Brazilian sport. Now, for those who may not know, uh, she comes from one of the, I, I believe, the worst favela in all of Brazil. So she's certainly a source of inspiration for, for many Brazilians. Now let's see, continuing with the article. Uh, phenoterol is used to treat asthma and Silver claimed that she had a clean drug test of the world's. Yeah, so, all right, I already got that. So, okay, here's the thing. I said this in my, like, my last episode, I think, and I, I, I'll kind of say it again. I, I, I really don't care. I mean, I, I mean, I care that Silver got suspended by the IJF for two years. I, I, be, I do care about that, but... Performance enhancers. I mean, there's no way she accidentally. Uh, how do you how do you accidentally inject a steroid or a performance enhancer into your body? I, how, how does that even happen? But to me, ultimately, I don't care because I just assume everybody else everybody else is on something, and I, I I'm sure there are many high level competitors that may hear that and say to themselves, "Well, I'm not taking anything." And sure, maybe you're not. But I just I just happen to think on a on a grand scale people are on something. That's just that's the assumption that I have until I'm proven that they're not. Call me a cynic. I I don't know. I don't care. I'm just saying all athletes will bend the rules if if the opportunity presents itself. And you know, like I said before, the old saying goes: if you're not cheating, you're not trying. But that's kind of how I feel about it. It's it's really unfortunate for her. Um, it, it wouldn't shock me if anybody else on the Brazilian team is 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 on some kind of um, performance enhancers in some way, shape, or form. And yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate for that division as a whole because I want to see the best athletes competing. And she's definitely one of the best in the world. And for her to not be in that under 57 kilo division, I, I'm not going to say it throws it into turmoil in the same way of... Uh, Saeed Molai throwing fights, but it does it does change things quite a bit, and certainly which in some ways it's good, in some ways it's bad. I certainly it's certainly good for some other competitors that uh, now they have a better opportunity with silver not in their way. But ultimately, I I just want to see the best of the best out there, and 
if they're on performance enhancers or not. I I I really don't care. Just I just don't want to see you sticking a needle in your butt right before you get onto tatami. That's all I care about. Like I don't want to actually see it, you know. <laughs> Let's pray that never happens. I want to cover the New Year message put out by uh, the president of the Kodokan, Haruki Umura. And I wanted to cover this because there are some tidbits in here that I found very interesting that I thought uh, may, be interest, uh, may be of interest to some of you. So what I'll do in my customary way, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just uh, go through the message and I'll, I'll parse my opinions as I'm reading it. So I'll just begin right from the very top. Uh, Happy New Year. It's my great pleasure to send my greetings and best wishes for 2020. This year marks the 160th anniversary of Jigoro Kano's birth. I am very happy that in this commemorative year, Tokyo will host the Olympics and Paralympics to which he dedicated his life. Kano Shian became the first member of the International Olympic Committee from an oriental country in 1909 at the request of Baron de Kobotan. Uh, the modern Olympic spirit that he pursued had many things in common with Kano's ideas, especially Zeroku Zenyo and Jita Kyoye, uh, advocated by Kano, may have resonated with, with Baron de Kupatan, uh, uh, whose aim to mature young people through sport and promote world peace through international exchange. To realize Japan's participation in the Olympics, Kano established the Japan Amateur Sports Association and became its first chairman in 1911. In the following year, he led the Japanese team of two athletes to Stockholm and took part in the first Olympics for Japan. Afterwards, he made tremendous effort for Tokyo's successful bid to hold the Olympics, which would be his first, uh, the first in Asia. His effort bore fruit at the IOC general meeting in 1936 when Japan beat Helsinki by the vote of 36 to 27 to decide on Tokyo as the venue for the 1940 Summer Olympics. Unfortunately, however, after his death, Japan had no choice but to forego hosting the games due to the worsening international situation. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting way to put it. Gee, what was happening in 1940? I wonder. Anyway. In the proposed but unrealized Tokyo Olympics, unofficial demonstrations of the national sports of Japan, judo and kendo, as well as baseball had been planned. It was not until Tokyo 1964 games, and it was not until the Tokyo 1964 games that judo was introduced as an official event. But if the 1940 Olympics had taken place, judo would have made its Olympic debut as far back as a quarter of a century earlier. Now that is fascinating to me. Because one, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. And two, I have always been told that Kano did not want judo as an Olympic sport. And according to this, uh, this New Year's message by, by the president of the Kodokan, uh, that's not true. So this is really interesting because, I mean, I, I'm not bashing traditionalists, don't get me wrong. But I, I've always heard a lot of traditionalist people say that Kano would have never wanted judo to be an Olympic sport, but uh, this, this, what was just written here is, is very contrary to that idea. All right, continuing on. As was the case in previous years, various tournaments and seminars were held in 2019 at home and abroad for all age groups from children to seniors 
and for all skill levels from beginners to high down holders. Many participants enhanced their skills with each other and boosted exchange through judo. Of note is the world championships held in uh, Nihon Budokan, uh, Budokan in August as a pre-event of the 2020 Games. Participated by, in, by 828 athletes from 143 countries and regions, the competition attracted media attention and a large audience. In the competition, athletes representing their countries gripped each other and carried out aggressive, courageous matches. They demonstrated techniques they had polished through their daily practices, their well-honed uh, built bodies, and spiritual strength. Spiritual strength. Their matches rose to the point that their offensive and defensive techniques were uh, uh, thrilled the audience. Along with the athletes' enthusiasm, the level of referee skills improved considerably. Now, I've been saying that for 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 a past few years. Anyway, I I think the referees do a fantastic job. Um, and I'm not even saying that just to defend them. I I just genuinely believe that. I I really believe they get the call uh, right the uh, 99 of the time at least. See, continuing on. However, I was concerned about the fact that referees depended too much on videos to judge Nagewaza, which caused frequent delays in the matches. When Nagewaza was performed, referees paid so much attention to whether the back touched the mat that they gave less importance to the Ikioi and Hazumi. And for those that may not be aware of that terminology, uh, Ikioi is uh, momentum with force and speed and Hazumi is skillfulness, uh, according to this article, skillfulness with impetus, sharpness of rhythm. Nagewaza should be executed so that the opponent may touch his back on the tatami mat, but the value of Nagewaza lies in the ikioi and Hazumi. Now, before I continue on, there's things that I agree with and I disagree with. For, for starters, I disagree with the referees depending on a video replay. Look. I say this about all sports. If the technology uh, was in, uh, was around when the sport was invented, they would have used it. That's my opinion. I, I know a lot of people say that about other, other sports, but I really do believe that's the case. Um, if video replay existed in 1886, you know, in the early 1900s and such, they would have used it to make sure that the... Because, right, look... The World Championships, the Olympic Games, the Grand Slams, the Grand Prix... There's too much. There's too much money. There's too much at stake for to to get the call wrong. Far important to waste time. Well, not waste time, but spend a lot of time to make sure that the call is right, than to make the wrong call for the sake of being uh, prompt in your decision making. Get it right. Get get it right and make sure it's right. Um, because look, like I said, it's too much is at stake. You you can't you can't allow, for example, a repeat of what happened with uh, uh, David Duye uh, and uh, Shinohara back in the Sydney Games. You can't that can't happen again. You know, if you if you guys haven't seen the match, go 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 look at it. And you know, I, heck, you know, tell you the truth, I've seen that match several times. I really don't know who won. And I tend to think that Shinohara won. But with video replay, at least we would have a more firm decision in, a, in an instant like that. Now, I kind of do agree about the speed and force of the throws. The Ikioi and Hazumi. I think an element of that has been lost 
um, in in evaluating judo, uh, in evaluating the scores, whether it's Wazari or Ipon, they're just looking at how much the uh, the back has hit the mat or where they're landing. And because I, I I have seen, and I know the referees are just calling the matches based on the existing rule sets. But when I was coming up through the ranks at, at uh, my first club, which was a very traditional club, uh, speed and force mattered. It wasn't just about getting the back on the mat. You had to do it with speed and force. And and I'm not saying it doesn't matter in, to, in today's IJF, but it does seem, just as a general observation, that it doesn't matter as much. Which is why I really do hate rolling Epon I, I, in continuation. I, I think that's BS. I, I've never liked that because there's no force if you throw a person, they land in, in initially a Wazari, but you keep continuing through the motion and it ends up being an opponent. There's no force there. And I, I can't be convinced otherwise. Call me stubborn. I don't care. But there's no force in those situations like that and it shouldn't be called. All right, let's see. Continuing on. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see. Um, oh, okay. Here I am. I am also concerned about the unclear judging of standing position and ground position. Yeah, you and me both. Osai Komiwaza should be performed facing the opponent and holding him down with his back on the mat so to render, render him unable to move. But the referees declared Osai Komi, even though the opponent's back did not touch the mat or when both players uh, laid down side by side, even or even in the case of the aggressor's body, was underneath the opponent's. Referees may have declared Osai Komi because the opponent was unable to move, but it was off the point of Osai Komiwaza. And I agree with that as well. I've seen some, and again, I'm not criticizing the refs because they're just working within the confines of the rules, but I've seen some very curious Osai Komi calls. I, there used to be a time when um, the person holding the, the opponent down, your the hips had to be facing the ground. They could not be pointed up toward the ceiling. Um, and I've seen some cases where that uh, people have won where in those situations. I've seen... Osai Komi, where the person is mostly on their side and, and both their shoulder blades are not touching the mat. Uh, I, I think that's weak, and I, I tend to agree with this point of view. All right, let's see. Th- this next paragraph kind of had me chuckle a little bit. Um, there have been many discussions on the refereeing rules so far, and I think they will be reviewed again and again in the Olympiad cycle, showing clearly the principles and, and technical systems, which are the original point of Kodokan Judo, we have to strictly discern between what needs to be changed in accordance with the times and what is not to be changed. It is necessary through repeated discussions to set forth the principles and theories rooted in judo. Now, uh, uh, Mr. Amura, I, I hate to break it to you, but IJF judo is not Kodokan judo. And one of the bigger reasons why is, well, God, do I say it? Leg grabs. Yeah, I know, right? But, you know, for me, when I look at the IJF, I just look at it as IJF judo. And and I I enjoy it for what it is, but I don't consider IJF judo Kodokan judo. Because Kodokan judo has uh, many more techniques that are within the syllabus that, quite frankly, is not in... if, If the IJF were to put out a syllabus of judo techniques... Many of the techniques in Kodokan Judo would not be in, in the IJF Judo syllabus. It, it's, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's just, you know, 
And I don't think anybody should pretend that they, they aren't different. They just are. And there's no shame in that. Let's see. Continuing on, it says, uh, We would like to define Nagewaza, Osaikomiwaza, standing position and ground position so that we will be able to explain them properly in clear language. All right, I, I guess I get that. It, it can be a little convoluted at times, especially those transitionary phases. All right, let's see. Um, the World Judo Kata Championships took place in, in Korea in September. Oh, boy, here. Yeah, here, here. A bunch of you are already fast-forwarding. Just just calm down. Let me get to it. It was the 11th meet and, and participated by 80 pairs from 29 countries and regions from five continents. Japanese athletes participated in the categories of Katami no Kata, Kime no Kata, and Kodokan Goshinjutsu and were awarded... First prize in all of them. Brazil captured the Nage no Kata and Germany the Juno Kata. 11 countries won medals. That number shows that Kata has been spread to many countries. To further promote uh, uh, to promote further development, we will discuss how to teach Kata in ways that are more simple and easy to understand while dispatching instructors and enhancing seminars to trainees who are eager, eager to learn the essence. Now, I hope that comes to fruition um, because... Apart from Drager's book, there's not much in the way of details when it comes to uh, judo kata. We, we see them in video, but it, it's almost as if unless you know somebody that teaches kata or you see it in video somewhere, that, that's really all you got to, to learn kata. And, and I think, I think um, finding different ways to, to teach kata um, and, and, and go into the breakdowns and details are, is, 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 is pretty important. And I know I've talked about this before. I'd like to go back to Judocon and, and the, the, the uh, short uh, kata session that, that I was able to take part of on, on that Saturday. I learned things about Nage no Kata that I've never really uh, been able to extrapolate from video. And, and things about that kata that just is – there isn't a video out there that really goes into that kind of detail of, uh, of explanation. Um, and it's likely because it's just, you know, because most of the videos that are published are not question-answer videos. It's just a lot of it's demonstration. A lot of it is is covering some of the um, the basics that really anybody that has experience already knows. But some of the details involved are not covered, and I think – I, I think it would be great if um, if those kind of details were covered in a, I don't know, maybe they already exist and I've just not come across them. Some kind of a, a master class video of, of certain judo kata. Now, continuing on with the article, here's an important uh, new kata that the Kodokan has, has created. Uh, continuing on with the article, last year the Kodokan created Kodomo no Kata. Uh, which is kata for children. In cooperation with the International Judo Federation and the French Judo Federation, intended to systemize what children should learn first when they take up judo, we made it a response to request... Uh, scratch that. We made it in in, in response to requests not from Jap Japan, but from overseas where there are few instructors. We hope it will be used as the instruction to Nage no Kata to effectively teach Kata to children. And hey, who knows? Maybe that, that can extend to adults as well. Kano Shihan invented Judo after developing the concept of effective instruction, which had been little noticed by Jiu-Jitsu. 
uh, that's Japanese jujitsu. We have we have to be mindful of various things in creative ways in order to research teaching methods. We have to pursue further in-depth study, which is the responsibility of all who are involved in instruction. As long as we consider judo as education, we have to ask ourselves questions about teaching methods. Uh, completely agreed. Kano Shien said that training styles include kata, randori, kogi, uh, which is lecture, and mondo, which is dialogue. Uh, this means learning the theory by kata, applying it in randori, acquiring knowledge from kogi, and nurturing thinking skills through mondo. Mondo has been uh, reassessed recently, encouraging students to find an answer in an another important educational tool beyond just telling an answer. Now, truth be told, I do not know much about the history of Kogi and Mondo, but I do think in its own way, this does continue. I mean, you know, for example, this podcast or, or, or anybody that does a live stream and has a discussion with people who are watching or Perhaps if you go on the judo subreddit or any judo forum that are in different languages, I mean, that is a continuation of Kogi and Mondo in a way. And sure, it's not done perhaps within the setting of a particular dojo, but I do think, you know, utilizing the technology that's already out there, we, um, many of us out there have continued to to do this, both both instructors and students and enthusiasts, I, I think, um, I think we're there. Maybe I, I, perhaps they, they want to structure it in a specific way, but but I think we're there you know, in a way. I, and, and again, perhaps I am not understanding the historical nature of, of Kogi and Mondo. Hopefully I get that terminology right. But from my perspective, I think we're kind of there. All right, continuing on. Uh, we will renew. We will renew awareness of the achievements that our predecessors made instead of searching for something new, so that we may communicate judo as an understand uh, in an understandable manner. Instructors of IJF Academy visited us recently to film a video for one week. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that video. What the world expects from Kodokan is to show that what judo should be, provide clear answers, and communicate to the world. At the outset of the new year, we would like to get back to the original point of Kodokan Judo founded by Kano Shihan and make persistent efforts to promote not only Judo for competition, that's in quotes, but also a Judo as education or Judo to nurture people. We would also like to put uh, Zeroku Zenyo and Jita Kyoye into practice and convey the spirit and essence of Kodokan Judo both domestically and globally. In this way, we wish to carry on the tradition of Kodokan Judo founded by our predecessors and add a new page to our history. I ask for your continued guidance, support, and cooperation. In conclusion, I wish you the best of the new year 2020. Um, yada, yada. All right. I, I think that's a great um, pursuit. I'm sure. I, I know this kind of uh, letter is published every year, and it probably says uh, a lot of the same things toward the end there. And I, and I agree with all of that. You know, judo is an education of, and judo to nurture people. I think, um, I think those aspects of judo are overlooked by some people out there, uh, some, some people that are just solely focused on competition. You know, in, in terms of, you know, judo, judo to nurturing people, what I, I, what I think it may be going in that general di- or the direction that they may be going is not only just, just children but adults as well because, you know, I, I can't remember if I've ever said this um, before in the podcast, but for me, you know, I was 
you know, prior to judo, I was kind of an introverted person. And um, when I started judo and, and, and really be, really got into training and everything, I, I was I was an introverted person off the mats and but an extroverted person on the mats. And I've taken a lot of of, of that, you know, extroversion, if you will, and, and applied it to my day to day life. And I, I, I think, you, you know, I've grown as a person over the past 14 years of doing judo and and. And I believe judo is a big part of that. Not not that I was some kind of, you know, introverted wreck where I couldn't, you know, walk into a room and 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 feel comfortable. Well, uh, yeah, maybe that's true. Uh, it, it's been so long. <laughs> you know, my late twenties and early thirties just seems like a lifetime ago to me, honestly. So I I don't quite remember all those things, but I know, I know I can be fairly uh, extroverted. You know. Outside of the dojo as well, and I think that's a good thing for me. And I think ultimately, what I'm trying to get at is that I I truly do believe that that judo can bring out the best in all of us, and help us grow as individuals, and and allow us to help other people grow as individuals. I I really believe that. Now, before I get into talking about the Tel Aviv Grand Prix, I I need to cover this. This is this is about breaking news of sorts. Um. Yeah, and, and this is a really disgusting story. Just just when you think this story is is almost over, uh, it just rears its ugly head, and it's just just a shame. Here's the headline: Iran is trying to prevent Saeed Molai from representing Mongolia. Now, I am getting this article from Ynet News, which is a an Israeli news website. So I'm translating this uh, from. From Hebrew, so if if some of the translations doesn't sound right, um, just bear with me while I try and and um, connect the dots of what they're trying to say. All right, so here it goes: the Iranian Olympic Committee and the State Judo Association recently approached CAS, CAS, that's the the Arbitration Tribunal for Sports, uh, to launch a proceeding that would prevent Saeed Mullai from representing Mongolia and require him to compete in his native uniform before the Tokyo Olympic Games this summer. According to the Iranians, Mullai did not re- receive a release from them to represent another country after defecting to Germany at the end of the Tokyo World Championships last year. Remember, he stopped representing Iran and accepted refugee status. Just days before the China Masters competition at the end of last year, Mullai... Uh, visited Mongolia, the former Judo Association, Judo Association president, uh, President uh, Batugla, who gave him a passport so that he could register and compete under the flag of his new country. For this move, the athlete has to get permission from this source country. This did not happen at a time when the judoka was directly to represent Mongolia without receiving the green light from the Iranians. Following the urgency of the application for a hearing on the issue, uh, IJF President Marius Wieser decided not to end up at the Tel Aviv Grand Prix. He preferred to prepare well for the CAS hearing, CAS again, uh, to which he was invited to give evidence. The hearing took place last week and the parties are now looking forward to the decision. Now before I continue on, um, in case none of you are aware, and I was not aware of this prior to hearing this story, um, CAS is, is, uh, stands for the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And according to the Wikipedia page, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Um, It's an international quasi-judicial body established to settle disputes related to sport through arbitration. Its headquarters are in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, and its courts are located in New York City, Sydney, and Lausanne. 
uh, temporary courts are established in current Olympic host cities. Now, as far as I'm concerned, um, and, and there's more to the article, but as far as I'm concerned, um, cash should this should be an open and shut case for cash. They should throw this out because the International Judo Federation had a signed agreement um, uh, with the Iranian authorities regarding Saeed Malai and the rest of the Iranian team that are pulling off these these ridiculous shenanigans in refusing to fight Israelis in international competition. And I'm very happy that uh, uh, Mr. Wieser is taking this very seriously. I mean, so much so to the point that he was supposed to show up at the Tel Aviv Grand Prix and he decided to skip that event uh, to deal with this issue. So I would venture to guess by the time the Paris Grand Slam rolls around in, in, in a couple of weekends... Uh, that we should hear a decision by by Cass, and um, hopefully they'll decide. Uh, hopefully they'll do the right thing, and the right thing at this moment is to tell Iran to shove it and allow Saeed Malai to compete under the Mongolian flag. All right. So continuing on with the article, it should be remembered that Mr. Visa worked uh, very hard for Malai and accompanied him throughout from defending him from his country's delegation at the World Championships to the situation where he was required to fly to Germany. Uh, Mr. Wieser was also the man who eventually led to the suspension of the Iranian Judo Federation and from uh, uh, the Iranian Judo Federation from any international competition following the state's refusal to allow its athletes to compete with Israelis. The suspension is expected to continue as long as the Iranian boycott continues, and that's how it should be. Now, I think I'm going to stop reading the article here because this is where some of the translation gets a little funky. But look, ultimately, this story, unfortunately, is is the bad gift that keeps on giving. And as I discussed in my last episode, I do think this was the biggest judo story of the year. And I just hope that this, this whole thing is put to an end and that Mulai uh, will continue to be able to compete on the International Judo Federation World Tour. And I was told by Mark Pickering, who works for the International Judo Federation, that Saeed Malai is expected to be at the Paris Grand Slam. And uh, Sagi Muki did not compete at the Tel Aviv uh, Grand Prix. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But I'm hoping that he shows up at the, uh, at the, the Paris Grand Slam as well. And we can finally have an opportunity or a chance to see that matchup that we've been longing to see for quite some time. So... Because you, you've got the 2008 uh, World Championship winner and the 2019 World Championship winner. That's, that has become the matchup that I want to see uh, this year at some point. You know, last year for me it was Majlinda Kelmendi and Uta Abe. And for me this year it's uh, Saeed Molai and, and Sagi Muki who have, like I've said before, uh, Molai has called them his best friend. And, and I think that's a tremendous uh, direction on how uh, this situation uh, can go. Really, I, I just think that's a that's a really uh, fabulous thing, and 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 that just this is really just a shame what 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 Iran does, and he, they, they, all they're doing is harming their own athletes. That that that's it. Now, I just took a look at the IGF site, and and I have confirmed that according to the IGF site, looking at the participant uh, list for the Paris Grand Slam. Sagi Muki is supposed to compete at the Paris Grand Slam and with Saeed Molai get at least look that's what I said before Mark Pickering told me that Saeed Molai is supposed to be there uh, even though he's not on that list uh, we may have that that uh, contest that we've been waiting for now boy I, I just hope that 
if uh, Said Mulai steps on the mat as as a Mongolian, that um, that his family is not in, in in jeopardy in any way. I mean, this is just such a, a a horrible and disgusting situation. It should never come to this. But in terms of what happens on the mat, that's certainly a matchup that I'm really longing to see uh, because they're the two best in that division. It's simple as that. All right, so moving along to the Tel Aviv uh, Grand Prix. Now, for this event, I'm not going to get into two huge breakdowns because not all of uh, Judo's biggest stars showed up for this, but but it's still an important event. It's an event that kicks off the the World Tour uh, year heading into the Tokyo Olympics. Now, I must admit, I did not watch every match of this Grand Prix. Uh, gra- uh, excuse me, Grand Prix, simply because of just just time and, and things going on. I had my son and, you know, all, you know, the usual family type stuff. But I did manage to catch uh, some of it, um, mostly the final rounds and such, because that that's just, that's all the time I really had uh, it, before I could prep for this podcast. So now starting off with the under 60 kilo division, and I, you know, I've said this before, <laughs> I'll say it again. This is so bad, but God, I really don't care about this division. I, I don't know what it is. It's not that they're they're bad judoka or anything like that. It's the good matches and such. I just I don't care. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Somebody somebody help me out. What's wrong with me? I should like this division. They're they're small guys like myself, but I don't know. So uh the gold medal winner for the under sixty kilo division uh for the men's side is uh Kim Won uh Kim Won Jin of South Korea. Uh, the silver medal went to Mihrak uh, Akus of Turkey. And uh, the bronze medals went to Dai Aoki of Japan and Nikolai Foka of Moldova. Now, for anybody that's interested, Team USA went uh, one and done in this, uh, in, in this particular division. Now, moving on to the under 66 kilo division. This is where I found uh, great interest. An Bao of South Korea made his return. Now, for those who may not remember... An Bao was suspended by South Korea for uh, for faking his community service records in order to to do judo. I I find that kind of funny um, and sad, but funny at the same time. I, I don't know why. Just um, almost the equivalent of uh, the dog ate my homework uh, type of thing. <laughs> but anyway, An Bao is back, and, and that's really really. Uh, Important for the division, it really changes things. Not that I think An Bao uh, will beat the eventual under sixty-six kilo competitor from Japan, but but that does cause quite a shakeup because he is one of the best in that division. Now An Bao defeated um, Yerlan uh, Sherikzanov of Kazakhstan uh, first with a with a Wazari about fifty-one seconds in, which I th- was surprised. I would have thought they would have called that a Nippon. Uh, with the you know the BS continuation that I can't stand, but I thought there was enough there for Nippon based on the way the rules are are called in most of these matches. But um, he gets the Wazari there, and he also gets the uh, Wazari. I was set to Nippon a, a, about two minutes later on a, a, a another drop Sayoyatoshi, which golly, I that's a bad call. I'm sorry. I I defend the refs as much as possible, but come on. The guy lands on his uh, on his head, almost in a turtle position, and in about two seconds later, it so it seems, he rolls him onto his back. He gets the 
the other Wazari for the Wazari Awaseti Ipon. I don't like that at all. I think I think that's a bad call. And and hopefully, um, in after the Olympics when they revisit the rules, that that they maybe they'll revisit that. And speaking of revisiting rules, apparently, um, you've heard it here first or second or or maybe even last. I don't know. They may uh revisit the leg grabbing rule in 2020. Now don't. Get all excited. Singles and doubles are likely not coming back, but they were. Um, there may be some modification to those rules, um, but we shall see. So Sherik Zanov gets the, the gets the silver medal. Uh, the bronze medals go to um, Tal Flicker of Israel, uh, who is another strong uh, uh, competitor in this division. Really, the whole Israelis team is super strong, and they had a good day. Obviously, since they are. Uh, this was the host country. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Uh, so Tal Flicker gets the one bronze, and Daniel uh, Char uh, Chargnin of Brazil gets the other. Now in the under seventy three kilo division, my main man Fabio Basile uh, ends up taking first place uh, via Fusen Gaichi. Now I don't know what happened to Ferdinand um, Karapetian of Armenia, but something happened because. Uh, he couldn't compete to the finals. I watched his semifinal match, and he defeated uh, Salvador Casas Roca of Spain uh, with a pretty imp- impressive counter to to Casas Roca's attack, which uh, uh, Casas Roca uh, attacked with with what looked to be uh, Ukigoshi to me, and and let let out a, a a scream like he was the Incredible Hulk or something, and and got countered and uh, was thrown flat on his back. I saw. Uh, Karapetian celebrate, and he didn't seem injured there, but uh, something clearly happened. I don't know what it was, and um, uh, so Fabio Basile gets the default win. Now the two bronze medals go to Martin Hojak of Slovenia and uh, Niels Stump of Switzerland. Congratulations to them. Moving on to the under-81 kilo division, where Sagi Muki was nowhere to be found, unfortunately. I, I guess he's... I mean, I I know he was he's going to compete at Paris, but I it would have been nice to see him here. But uh, I I suppose you know they they gave him the the tournament off, or he decided to not compete in this. Whatever the case may be, um, it's never quite the same when Sagimuki is not uh, competing. So first place goes to Aslan uh, Lapiganov of Russia, and he defeated Alexios. Uh, uh, Tanasidis of Greece uh, with a nice Uchimata in Golden Squad. Let me let me get on my soapbox here. Um, with the tragic deaths of Craig Fallon and Jack Hatton, the IJF needs to take a look at um, maybe commission some sort of studies on co- on concussions with uh, judo athletes. Um, and the reason I say this is because in this match, you you had. Um, Tanasidis used his head to try and avoid the throw. 
which I've called for this before, that that should be an automatic fine and a suspension. I mean, his neck his neck bent backwards, and you cannot use your head to to prevent the throw. I mean, that should be so cut and dry. It should be an automatic suspension and a fine. And I understand that um, that at this level, the stakes are very high and such, but. Look, the IJF, in my opinion, needs to take a page out of the NFL. If you go headhunting in the NFL, you're going to get fined. You keep doing it, you're going to get suspended. It's no, it should be no different in, in the, the highest levels of judo. We cannot have uh, the possibility of broken necks or the possibility of, of long, long-term head trauma happening on the world tour. That is not good for judo. Especially as a sport that wants to gain an even even bigger foothold on the international sporting stage, you can't you you can't have these issues. All it's going to take is one broken neck for judo to make world news for all the wrong reasons. And, and I, I they got to do something about that. They really do. So the bronze medal winners went to UD Eduardo Santos of Brazil and uh, Luca Maizorazzi of Georgia. Sorry if I butchered that name. And if anybody's interested, Team USA went uh, one and done in this division and the other two divisions, uh, the under 66 and under 73 kilo divisions. Now moving along to the uh, the under 90 kilo division, the gold medal winner was Dong Han Gwak of Korea, defeating Mikhail uh, Ozerler of Turkey with a beautiful uh, drop Seoya Toshi um in golden score, which, golly, again, this is something that I probably would have called the pawn. I thought it was a, I thought it was a great technique worthy of the pawn. I don't know if the ref was just not in the right position, or, or was it the same ref? I mean, I, I'm not even sure. But um, so yeah, so I, I, uh, Guac gets the gold. Uh, uh, Zerler gets the, the the silver. The bronze medal winners go to Piotr Krukzera of Poland and Rafael Macedo of Brazil. Um. Team USA got a 7th place finish out of Colton Brown. Congratulations to him. Now I got to say Colton Colton has had a nice year on the world tour uh, over the past 365. He got 7th uh, place at the uh, last year's Tel Aviv Grand Prix, 2nd place at the Montreal Grand Prix and and uh, another 7th place at the Tel Aviv Grand Prix. You know, I uh, he I think he's got a good chance to to make a showing at the at the Olympics, it, 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 if he makes it up there, it's not out of the question that, um, you know, as we saw four years ago with Fabio Basile, sometimes you just have to, you just got to be the right guy at the right day, just just having the day of your life. So that's how close the talent is at this level, um, especially for somebody like Colton. You know, he could he could get really hot and, and, and just have the day of his life and, 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 and earn a medal. I mean, it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility with him. Now in the under 100 kilo division, the crowd was going really wild for its uh, homegrown hometown Peter Polchik of Israel, who defeated uh, Leandro Gonçalves of Brazil uh, with a um, well, I I don't know what you call it. Uh, uh, Gonçalves attacked him with like an Ashigaruma and and uh, excuse me, Polchik jumped over him somehow and. Put him on his back. I, I don't even know what you call it, but uh, I'm going to call it a gold medal win. So congratulations to to Peter Polchik. Uh, Leandro Gonçalves gets the silver medal. And the bronze medal winners are Carl Richard Frey of Germany and Rafael uh, Buzacarini of Brazil. 
Now in the over 100 kilo division, you had another hometown hero, Or Sasan of Israel defeating Songmin Kim of Korea. Now this match, the crowd again was just phenomenal. Uh, as you can hear in the background, they're just cheering the heads off and... And as soon as uh, the referee, it was an odd situation with the uh, with his first Wazari where he gets a, a Tani Otoshi. It's it's uh, 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 Sasson uh, attack with a Sayori Otoshi and and uh, uh, Sungmin manages to avoid it, but kind of walks away and and there was no Mate, so Sasson attacked him, threw him on his on his side and, and and got the Wazari. And as you can hear, the crowd going wild there. So Sasson manages to hold on to that Wazari for, for the win and a, and a gold medal for him. Kim of South Korea gets the silver. And for the bronze medal winners, Yusuke uh, Kumashiro of Japan gets one bronze. And, and Yakiv uh, Kamno of the Ukraine gets the other bronze. Now moving on to the women's division, Natsumi Tsunoda wins the gold medal. Good good to see her win there. I'm, I'm a big fan of her father's. I think he's the... Uh, the head coach for the Argentinian judo squad, I think. But uh, he had some really fabulous technique. He looks like to be an excellent instructor from the videos that I've seen on, on YouTube. So it's always good to see her uh, get the win. Now, I don't think this will help her in her bid to get to the Olympics to represent Japan because of uh, Funatonaki of Japan being the points leader there and, and likely the person that's going to be selected by the... Uh, uh, you know, all Japan Judo Federations to re represent Japan in the Olympics. But maybe, I, I, I don't know all the rules per se, but uh, maybe Sonuda can get in because Japan is the host country so they can, uh, they can add more players. But I don't know if that, if that uh, works out for the Olympics. Uh, I think it does, but I'm not quite sure. Now, it's important to note Dario Bilo did, did not compete in this tournament. Um, so Sonuda defeated uh, Shirin uh, Bokli of France. And the bronze medal winners are, are Bader of Turkey and Melanie Clement of France. Now moving on to the under 52 kilo division, you have uh, Krishima Maeda of Japan taking gold there. And she defeated uh, Bakyong Jian of South Korea. The bronze medal winners in the under 52 kilo division was uh, Dasol Park of South Korea and, and Charlene Van Snick of Belgium. Of course, competitors of note that were not at this tournament uh, would include uh, Majlinda Kelmendi and Uta Abe. So, to me, you know, like like with so many other other divisions, when you have when you don't have the top dogs uh, in these divisions, you, the wins are important. Don't get me wrong, but it does take a little bit away uh, the luster of these victories. And that's not that's not to say that they didn't earn it, um, but certainly it's not quite winning the. Paris Grand Slam, and, and that's for good reason. But uh, continuing on to the under 57 kilo division, you have uh, Kaja Kajer of Slovenia taking first place, and she defeated Helene Recevo of France. And I think that's a quality win over a, over a solid opponent. Recevo of France is, has been uh, a fixture for a very long time, and she's a very excellent judoka. So that's a big win for, uh, for Kajer out of Slovenia. Uh, she won in golden score with um, really, again, one of those questionable calls in my opinion. But she got the score. It doesn't matter. She wins. The, the bronze medals go to Nora uh, Jakova of Kosovo and Hedvig uh, Caracas of Hungary. 
Now, in the under-63 kilo division, you have uh, Katharina Haker of Australia taking gold. Now, hold on a second. Do I do I got that right? Australia got gold on the world tour? Wow. That's got to be the greatest thing that happened to Australia since the Wiggles. All right. So, uh, she defeated uh, Catherine Boschman uh, Picard of Canada. And the bronze medal matches, uh, you had, uh, uh, or I should say the bronze medal winners, you have Renata Zakova of the Czech Republic and Martina Trajdos of Germany taking bronze. And I don't know if it's worth mentioning at this point, but uh, Team USA went one and done. It's also worth noting that, of course, the heavy hitters in this division were not present. That's namely um, Tina Turstenjack and, uh, boy, why is her name escaping me? Oh, yeah, Clarice Agbagnenu of, of France, of course. Now, in the other under 70 kilo division, Sarah, Sally Conway of Great Britain took first place. Boy, she, she's really had a good year. Not just a good year. She's had a good uh, past several years. And for me, I, I fully expect her to be in the running for for a medal of some sorts in Tokyo. Certainly, uh, well, I, I, I can't play favorites because I'm not talking about somebody on Team USA. But... But for me, I, I always got a little love in my heart for Great Britain because, you know, well, there's a lot of uh, history between the two countries. So what can I say? Anyway, moving on. Uh, she defeated uh, Sengorion Kim of South Korea. Uh, the bronze medal winner, winners were uh, Kelitia Supanik of Canada and I Sunoda Rostant of Spain. In the other under 78 kilo division, you have Natalie Powell of Great Britain. Uh, taking first place. And I, again, just like with Sally Conway, I, I expect Natalie to be very competitive in the Olympics for sure. You know, Great Britain, I, I've said it for a couple of years now, they've got a very strong uh, women's team. And uh, currently, if I'm not mistaken, Powell's ranked uh, number sixth on the on the IJF World Tour. So she's a mate, she's a heavy hitter in that, in that division. So she defeats Bernadette Graf of, of Austria. The bronze medal winners are uh, Hyun Ji Yoon of South Korea. Boy, South Korea had a day too, or or a tournament as well. Japan and South Korea just just had really good results here. And the other bronze medal winner was uh, Patricia Sampiao of uh, Portugal. I probably butchered that name. My apologies. And moving on to the uh, the over seventy eight kilo division, you have a bunch of women where quite quite frankly, um, I hate to say it, I'm not familiar with them. It's not Sarah Asahina, and it's not um, Idalis Ortiz. So if I if it's not any of those two, I don't really know you. <laughs> I hate to say that. That's not true. So the gold medal winner uh, um, for the plus 78 kilo division was Romaine Dico of France. She takes first place, defeating Tessie uh, Savelkoulis of the Netherlands. The bronze medal winners were Keira Said of Turkey, and the other bronze medal winner was uh, Rochelle Nunez of Portugal. It's uh, it's worth noting that uh, uh, Nina Kutro Kelly of Team USA did manage to earn a win, which is uh, congratulations to her. She was uh, finished ninth in the tournament, and she had a lot of uh, stiff competition. That I know, but of course, like I said, the heavy hitters of this division uh, were not present, and I expect them to be in Paris. Now, speaking of Paris, what I also expect is to see uh, Mr. Marius Wieser's first Twitter Q&A of the year. I'm really looking forward to that because I have some questions that I want to ask him uh, with regards to really player safety. And no, I'm not going to ask about leg grabs. Come on, stop it. 
So the Paris Grand Slam is going to be taking place on the weekend of February 8th now. As I mentioned before, um, this is going to be the second largest uh, tournament of the year next to the Olympics. Uh, even though there's going to be a few Grand Slams leading up to the Olympics, this is definitely the biggest one. I know Dusseldorf is making its way to being one of the bigger Grand Slams of the World Tour, but but it doesn't it doesn't quite match Paris. I mean, I think they fit uh, fifteen thousand spectators in that arena, something crazy like that. It's a well it's a well viewed event. It's um, certainly just just a lot of excitement. I always look forward to Paris every year. Now, I want to wrap, wrap up the episode with a, a little bit of judo history. And I came across this just a few days ago, and I wanted to share it with uh, you, my esteemed listeners. Um, I came across a series of old letters. Now, I, I came across them online, but written by Don Drager to a Mr. Uh, Robert W. Smith. Now, Robert Smith was a published author who wrote books on a variety of subjects regarding martial arts. And I just wanted to share, I, I will share the link on on my Facebook page and, and I'll probably share it on my Instagram somewhere. But these letters are, are really interesting. They, they, they're, they're a series of letters and excerpts from letters take, uh, taken in between 1959 and 1974. And it's really interesting to see Drager's thoughts on judo over that period of time and how his opinions may have changed slightly in what he thought about judo in the United States in, in, in the, certainly in the 60s. Now, for those who may not know, Don Drager was a pioneer in not only judo in the United States, but, but martial arts as a whole. He, he, wrote, he wrote several books, and he was very well studied uh, with Japanese culture. I don't know much about the man myself. I wish somebody would do a biography on him because I think he's one of the most prominent and interesting figures in the history of uh, judo in the United States, but he passed away in, in the early 80s from cancer, and and I just really, the only things that I've ever seen on him were old posts on the old judo forum uh, written by a fellow by the name of Dusty Mars, that was his handle, and he, I guess he knew Don personally, and there's nobody that I know that knew Don Drager personally, so this is what we really have to go on. And I, I've been wanting to do an episode dedicated to Don Drager, but I I simply don't know enough about the man to be able to do a proper ep- episode uh, celebrating his legacy. Now, I'm not going to read every single um, excerpt, but I'm just going to read some of the few that I found interesting and 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 humorous, to, to put, it, uh, put it that way. So, June 25th, 1959, uh, Drager writes, Unless I... Miss my guess, Isao Inokuma will be about 195 pounds come fall time. He has packed on 15 solid pounds already and is today the strongest judoka on the mat in Japan. I want you to meet him, work with him, and watch him train. His latest is interesting in that he throws a 30-man sandan lineup every day at school. The training is in addition to the thousands of Uchikomi, weights, and general randori in two dojo. He's murderous, but a real nice kid. He's only 21. Last Sunday, he dumped a 10-man Sandan line in 12 minutes. They can't promote him to Godan until he's 22. Ha! Exclamation point. And if you, for those who do, who do not know, uh, Isao Inukuma won the gold medal at the Olympics in 1964. And he was also a uh, an, an all-Japan judo champion and a world champion. And if I'm not mistaken... He, he entered a Sambo tournament um, 
sometime in the 60s and, and, and won that tournament as well. One of the best books ever written in judo is called uh, Best Judo, written by Isao Inukuma and uh, Nobuyuki Sato. And it was the first judo book that I ever purchased, and I still have it. I, it's still in my my pretty pathetic library, but um, but it's still a book that I still go back to uh, just for reference. All right, now this one was really hilarious to me. Uh, February 12th, 1961. This month is a big month for tournaments. If you can make it, for the end of the month, uh, as try because this will be, or I should say, this one will be good due to world matches coming up in December. All entrants are out for the kill. Inokuma, Inokuma looks like he's a sure thing barring unusual happenings and winding up his training schedule now with the final phase of speed weight training, wind sprint running, and high speed reps Uchikomi. Strange as it may seem to you, Inokuma is more or less in my charge in regards to his training by his own choice. That's really interesting, by the way. He is in tip-top shape, though recent back injury is nothing is worrying me a bit. Uh, standing at 195 pounds and is all muscle. Inokuma and I went to visit Kimura, 7th Don, the all-time great. Kimura very sarcastic to Inokuma and asked Inokuma to show him his hands. Looking at them very critically, Kimura remarked, Do you do judo? You have the hands of a woman. <laughs> Inokuma did not know what to answer, but Kimura continued, Look at my hands. I do judo. I can still beat you even at my age. With this, he turned and went back to the mat. I was really embarrassed, but Inokuma took it seriously and felt no personal slam. I had gone over to, uh, originally to arrange a study with Kimura for myself and also begin uh, collecting specific data on Kimura for a coming article or a small book on his training methods. Kimura is a good source of information. Yeah, no kidding, huh? Gisink here was very powerful and looked to be damn good against any on all comers. Now, that's talking about Anton Gisink, the, uh, the legendary judoka out of uh, the, uh, the Netherlands. He is rumored to be getting his Kotokan fifth don. Saw his exam and it was rough but passable. <laughs> that's really interesting. Blooming is another real killer, standing at 6 foot 5 and almost 230 pounds now. Solid muscle via weights. Only personal habits and tactless actions with fair sex seem to be blocking his fourth don. Gosh, I wonder what that means. And by Blooming, he's talking about John Blooming, who is also from the Netherlands. Let's see, continuing on. Knight is still running wild and has vowed to break JBBF, uh, which is the Judo Black Belt Federation, the future U.S. Judo Federation, USJF, and Kodokan ties. I'm damn sick of playing footsie with the AAU and him and have put my two cents worth to the JBBF officials. This meeting this coming weekend should see some fireworks. The JBBF is looking real strong under Yosh uh, Uchida's good leadership, and it won't be long before we have a long-dreamed-of organization. I'm still real busy with judo, of course, and getting all data on training and teaching methods. No use fooling myself any longer since contest training only leaves me with injuries that never heal. My speed is gone mainly due to painful joints when I move. I think I told you that I have some arthritis trouble, knees, wrists, elbows. It just pains it it just plain hurts to move fast. Concentrating on grappling now and getting all methods I can. That's why Kimura contact. Uh still can hold my own with any fourth or fifth don here as long as the wind lasts. Now just to note, when he wrote that he was thirty nine years old. Now moving on to uh, November 21st, 1963. Blooming is busy in the Netherlands but is in trouble with the Federation politics. His feud with Anton Giesink is bigger than ever. Anton is here now and has been named 
coach at Tenry University for four months. A uh, real reversal of traditional thinking here, eh? The lid is about to blow on the JBBF AAU struggle for power in USA Judo. Keep silent about it, but Phil Porter is building the AAU to take over the JBBF fallouts, who, while nice guys, don't realize the implications to see only the glory and titles Porter freely bestows upon them. Also big is Jerome Mackey's latest, namely Pro Judo for prizes over CBS-supported television network, begins in February. The JBBF, AAU, and the New York Yudanshakai are in an uproar and threatening to remove Mackey from the JBBF and request the Kodakan to void Mackey's grade. Mackey threatens to sue if this happens. Big deal and typical of Mackey, whose only interest is in his own pocket. Bad for judo if Mackey gets his way. The Kodakan will give acts to Mackey soon. I'm in constant conference with the, about this crap, and now it irks me to take away valuable time that I should be putting on manuscripts. Let's see, jumping to May 10th, 1964. The coming Olympics is heaping correspondence up upon my desk. I know that I owe you some things. Patience with me, please. Jim Bregman did well. As I told you, as good as he is, he could have been better if he only trained fully while he was here. Maybe now he can really set the pace and go after bigger things. Just made his fourth done, diploma being sent later. All right, now jumping ahead to September 2nd, 1969. The U.S. Judo Federation is fully supported by the Kodokan, International Judo Federation, and the International Olympic Committee. Phil Porter et al. will fall flat on their tails, though I have no doubt they can make their own bootleg outfit, the U.S. Judo Association, exist. If you knew the bastards in the U.S. Judo Association, you would not want any part of it. If that is judo, bad as the USJF is, then USJF is Jigoro Kano's paradise. Wow. That is really damning. And I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where I discuss some of the USJA's negative history. I probably should just leave that one alone, honestly. I mean, I know quite a bit about it, and there's some people that I know that um, lived during those days, but um, maybe it's best to let uh, sleeping dogs lie in that one. If you really want to know about the history of the USJA and maybe some of these... these um, Things that Drager is talking about, there, there's plenty of materials online uh, that you can use to draw your own conclusions. Now, here's something Drager writes that I find really interesting. And this is kind of where the point where you see his thoughts on judo uh, changing. January 30th, 1972. You're right about the U.S. judo scene. No Kanoian judo there. Uh, this is the main reason why I've packed it up. I train only for my own interests now. I don't like what I see, but I continue to aid the U.S. Judo Federation when asked if the project is worthwhile. A recent request from them was to aid the historical committee. The chairman was frustrated from the lack of cooperation. He turned to me, but I can only do do a bit due to my already over-heavy schedule here. If you want in on the project so that it reads right when I'm finished, to arrange, I can arrange it no matter what you think the USJF thinks of you. Let me know. Now, here's a really interesting entry here, May 13th, 1972. I have heard about the balls up at the U.S. Judo Nationals in Philadelphia. There is no excuse for this kind of crap, I admit. My main bitch about the modern cognate entities such as judo is that they play to the audience rather than the participants. Hmm, where have I heard that one before? Judo was never intended for an audience, so if they come, they must take what is done without special favors. As for totalitarianism, of course, all classical Budo is of that vintage, and for that reason, it is good and strong. But Westerners will rarely understand the beauty of such supervision, 
And for this reason, judo or whatever entity f fails to abide by a literal dictatorship will never be any good. He continues on to say, German judo, French judo, all lack the spirit and depth of the old system. Now, this is really interesting to me because as I understand that there might have been a debate, you know, decades upon decades ago on what they're on, on whether or not judo in the United States should be more Americanized and maybe follow more American, I don't know, say training methods, or should they stick with the Japanese methods because the Japanese methods were superior? I believe from things that I've read over the years that this was kind of a point of contention between people in the USJA and people like Don Drager and others. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but that has always been my impression. Drager continues, This is why I am turned off by modern approaches to things such as judo and why I am d deeply involved in totalitarian, totalitarian, <laughs> sorry about that, totalitarian entities such as Jojutsu and Ayutsu. They are harmonious efforts under one man's authority, which is never questioned, for it is the integrity of the system proves the questioner to be wrong. Drager uh, goes on to write in June 2nd, 1972, Judo is a, in a sad mess everywhere. That's the main reason I have deserted the sinking ship. There is just too much rock and throwing going on, and who needs this kind of treatment? I've been asked to construct a new system of jurisdictions to evaluate whether the USJF or the AAU setup is better, to render a new ranking policy and several other major projects. I am simply too busy to get involved. Nobody knows the work I have planned or stacked up waiting for me. My next 10 years are already com completely programmed. Now, five months later, he writes, I'm about out of judo as I look at my multitude of injuries, I see them all stemming from my association with judo. I don't want to batter myself anymore. I must be getting old, but not soft in the head. I have better things to do now. Now, when Drager wrote that, he was 50 years old. So what I'll do, I will link this on my Facebook page and and on the show notes because I, I think it's worth a read to take a look at the history uh, of, of these letters and, and kind of just see how Drager's thoughts on judo changed as he got older. Now I am 45 years old and um I don't feel that way about judo. However, I mean I need to make it perfectly clear. I did not do anywhere near the kind of physical training that Drager must have done. And I've seen videos of old um you know Japanese training methods and footage. They they did really weird things like like make you stand on your head literally while somebody's holding your feet and you're turning your neck and you know hundreds you know hundreds upon hundreds of of Japanese push-ups a day i mean they they were a lot of the old school training methods were really i don't know what's what's the word to put it um not conducive to long-term health i would say i mean i i i know there were many active judoka out there that can, you know, 50 and older that, that still get after it pretty hard and and they give it their best effort and they're not really broken down by any means. And really, as sports science and nutrition has changed over the decades, I think it will allow for people to be able to train into into their later years where somebody like Drager, you know, it was a, a kind of a young man's game back then. And, and that was it. I mean, once you you might get torn up, you know, with the exception of Kimura, but it seems for those people, once you got into your late 30s, you were almost put out the pasture and you were done just, just to uh, ride off into the sunset, so to say. So 
just it's just interesting point of view from Drager. And and again, he's a figure that I wish there was far more on him um, than there currently is. I know there's a book out there, but from what I understand, it's more of a a pamphlet of things that that is really already accessible via searches online and and such. I, I'm curious if there's any listeners out there that knew the man personally. I'd love to to pick your brain and just kind of get a uh, an overall sense of what the man was like. I mean, I know he was a Marine, a Devil Dog. A major in the Marine Corps, so he he clearly was tough as nails coming from that era. And of course, I know that judo has a long history in this country, and and many people played a a significant role in shaping uh, judo in the United States in the late 50s and early 60s and moving forward. But I get the overall sense that Drager's contributions were far more significant than one would... um, garner or get the impression on just from cursory you know internet searches so so anyway i think i'm gonna wrap things up here i know i've gone a little bit past the hour so if you've made it this far i really appreciate you and you haven't made it this far well i still appreciate you anyway if you want to reach out to me uh you could do it so at uh, judochopsui show at gmail.com my instagram is at lavita judoka and my twitter is also at lavita judoka if you want to follow the Facebook page, you can go search on Judah Chop Suey Podcast on Facebook. You'll be able to find it. My Facebook is just not as active because I'm just really bad at it, quite frankly. I'm not on Facebook very often. But you're welcome to follow me there, and you're welcome to reach out to me uh, on my personal Facebook fa- uh, page. You'll you'll recognize the picture of me if you do a search. So. So yeah, I think I'll wrap it up here. Remember, like I said earlier in the podcast, I've got my after-party segment after the Gangnam Style credits, which is probably going to start rolling momentarily if it's not rolling already. So with that, I hope you guys have a great day. I hope you have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. You know what? I'm not waiting 15 minutes. I'm going to get this thing started right now. So as I mentioned before, this is going to be the section where I talk about really anything that I want to talk about, but I'm just going to leave politics out of it. This is mostly movies, video games, TV shows that I've watched because sometimes, you know, there are things that I just got to talk about and get off my chest. And if I try to talk to my wife about it, most of the time she just gets that glazed look in her eyes like she's just humoring me and not really into what I'm saying or or, or more importantly, what I'm complaining about. And speaking of which, that brings me to my first topic. Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Now, I'm sure most of you that listen to me have already watched this movie. I'm not going to go do a deep dive because that's really not my thing. My overall impressions of the movie was better than that, that, uh, that last one. What was it? The Last Jedi. Very forgettable. Probably the worst... Star Wars thing produced and I, I really mean that I, I put that below uh, the Star Wars Christmas special that's how bad I really thought it was but uh, the rise of Skywalker I give it a 5 out of 10 there were moments that I was entertained 
Um, and I thought the best part of the movie was the scene where Luke and Leia were training, because that was a really nice surprise when they when they did the whole CGI effect to make them look young. That looked really awesome. But other than that, really the the, the movie was a disappointment. It was great seeing Lando Calrissian back, even though Lando looked like he ate Lando Calrissian. But still, it was still good seeing Billy D. Williams reprise that role. Um. Gosh, there's so much to, to cover and bash. I'm just not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. The the uh, C-3PO losing his memory. What else was I thought really stupid? Um, oh, yeah. Ghost Luke being able to catch physical objects. Come on, man. Oh, oh and what else? What did I tell you at the end of my episode that I would be hugely disappointed if Rey ended up being like related to Emperor Palpatine. Turns out that she's his granddaughter. Now, how the heck did that happen and when did that happen? I, I mean, are you serious? I mean, if you're going to go that route, then who are Rey's parents? Who is who is the ch- child or son or daughter of uh, of Emperor Palpatine? And And for the fact that they actually brought him back, that he never died on the Death Star... When when uh, Darth Vader threw him down, over and and we thought we all thought he was dead. So no, it turns out that he's alive and he he had been this entire time, uh, building up a fleet of a star destroying, uh, planet destroying ships. Which, uh, come on, that's really horrible. And you know, it almost renders everything that happened in uh. The original Star Wars trilogy, just pointless. All the hard work they did, all the sacrifices, it just didn't matter. Because the Empire was never defeated. And the whole destroying planet things is just overplayed. They they used up that card in, in A New Hope. And it was already a little bit played out. Even though I really liked the movie, uh, Return of the Jedi. You know, building another Death Star was, was I, I thought that was pretty bad. Even though the rest of that movie really held up. And then you had the whole... Destroying planets a thing again in, in uh, The Force Awakens. Just just overdone. I mean, come on. you got to have a better idea than that. So yeah, Rey is Palpatine, I guess, at the end. Um, which I'm not even sure. Just just like in, in The Last Jedi, I'm not even quite sure what killed Luke Skywalker. And in this one, I'm not quite sure what killed uh, Kylo Ren, uh, honestly. I mean, he managed to climb out of that, that ditch. Or, or really chasm or whatever you want to call it. And, and just to kiss Ray, and then he dies. Uh, okay. But the worst thing of it all was the very end of the movie. You know when she's back at the the Skywalker ranch. And and she's burying the lightsabers. And that old woman comes up to her. And, and asks her who she is. And she says Ray, And the old woman's like Ray who. And I thought to myself right when she said Ray who. I said don't, da- don't you dare Luke. Ghost Luke show up and. You know, something like that inspires her to say Skywalker. And that's exactly how the movie ended. Just really cheesy. And of course, you know, I walk out of the theater all a little bit disgruntled that I, you you know, there's a big disappointment. I hear some kid saying, that was the greatest movie ever. And I walked up to that kid and I said, don't you dare. You have no idea what you're talking about, kid. That's right. I put my finger in his face, too. So anyway, disappointing movie. Five out of ten. I was entertained. Um, but the, the movie had problems for me and I'm just going to leave it at that. Oh, and by the way, they can fly. Now, something else that was not a five out of 10 for me, I would rate this one much higher as you can hear the music. 
The Mandalorian on Disney Plus. What an excellent show. I got to give that one for me an 8 out of 10. And the only reason why it doesn't get a 9 out of 10, because one of the episodes I thought was just kind of a filler episode. And I hate when TV shows do that. Um, I I can't exactly remember which filler. It it was the episode where he meets up with that other bounty hunter that's like a rookie or something like that. That was a disappointing episode for me. but, But everything else was fantastic. And I thought it portrayed the Star Wars universe in a way that I want to see. You know, the Star Wars universe is is not supposed to be all fun and cliche and everything. It's supposed to be a very hard, very serious universe, at least to me. And I thought one of the scenes that perfectly uh, exemplified that was when uh, the Mandalorian was coming back to his ship and and he sees a bunch of Jawas breaking it apart. Uh, and, and stealing parts. So what does he do? He starts shooting the Jawas. Like to me, that's exactly what what should happen in the Star Wars universe. In where in the movies, you you kind of get this Keystone Cops routine, like you know, get back here, you little rascals, and that kind of thing. And you know, the the, the Jawas are like running, or whatever. But no, the Mandalorian starts shooting the Jawas. That's exactly what you got to do in that situation. And while I thought Baby Yoda was cute, the, the fact that there was a Baby Yoda, Yoda and and that's how Episode One ended. My my floor uh, my my floor dropped. My my jaw dropped to the floor. I was just very surprised to see that ending. It was just an awesome awesome first episode, and and I thought that the entire series was fantastic. It just uh, it was great. Now, what wasn't great for me though, um, boy, The Witcher on Netflix was a huge disappointment. I mean, I'm a huge Witcher fan, uh, mostly from the video games, but I was really looking forward to this series. I was really looking forward to see what kind of storyline that they would go with. And it just overall was a disappointment. The, the, the story was a bit convoluted, and it just... Um, the timelines and the jumping around and, and some of the characters... now. Henry Cavill nailed Geralt of Rivia. He played that role perfectly. That's exactly how I've always pictured Geralt in the books. It's exactly how he is in, in the in, in the video games. Uh, Henry Cavill played that role perfectly. Every nuance, every little thing was just fantastic. And the fellow that played Jaskier, who was, who was Dandelion in the games, just absolutely brilliant. He nailed that character. Uh, everybody else, he was kind of a, a mix of good and bad. I... I uh, the lady that trade uh, played Tris Marigold, I okay. I mean, and I thought the actress that played uh, Yennefer, I thought she was a good choice. But the whole Yennefer storyline, you, you know, in episode two they did the whole backstory of Yennefer, and I just thought that was completely unnecessary. It's a waste of an episode. And the whole thing with magic that you you have to draw in order to have magic power, you have to draw life from something else or, or you end up burning up and shriveling up your hand. That's just so, that that not necessary. It's not part of the, the canon. I don't know why they threw that in there. And, and, and Siri is supposed to be the, the most important or the second most important character in the entire Witcher series, at least the games that I've played. And she was just kind of a, a, a annoying kid and and they're supposed to be brought together by destiny and all this kind of stuff. That's just not that's not the world of the Witcher to me. And and I just 
I, I don't know. They jumped around timelines in between episodes, uh, episodes going from like episode four to five. That was like supposed to represent a, a, a period of five years passing. But you had to really pay attention to the dialogue to get that. It just it just jumped around and uh, just a just a big disappointment for me. What can I say? Now, going back to to video games, talking about The Witcher 3, which I think Witcher 3 to me is easily a 10 out of 10, probably one of the best games I've ever played in my life. I recently finished God of War on the PlayStation 4, which for me is also a 10 out of 10. I thought the story was brilliant, uh, especially the the dialogue and the relationship and the changing relationship between uh, Kratos and his son. And and the seriousness of that storyline, it was just... Just a wonderful, wonderful game. A wonderful experience. Uh, I'm currently playing Red Dead Redemption 2. Which, uh, I right now, I give it about a 9 out of 10. It's, it has similar things to Grand Theft Auto 5 that I like um, in terms of gameplay. But I do find it a little bit too easy. I've been trying to adjust the, uh, the difficulty settings when it comes to the aiming and the shooting to try and make it more difficult for me. I mean, I'm not such a big time gamer, you know, where, where I, you know, I can do free aim because my, my hands, I just don't have the, the reflexes um, and, and fast twitch muscles in my hands to be able to, you, you know, play in a way like some of the expert gamers are out there. But I don't care about that. I just want good stories and good gameplay. And this game has both. It's it's uh, so far. It's really interesting. I, I hope that it lasts me six months because I think there's. Uh, plenty of content out there for me to really explore. And I'm really enjoying the world of uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. It's a lot of fun. I will, I do like Grand Theft Auto 5 better. It was put up at the same gaming company. And um, just the craziness of Grand Theft Auto 5 just left me just laughing out loud over and over again. Just just, just a lot of fun. That was a, that was a great game set in Los Angeles and... Um, you know, I, I can't speak enough about that. That's a 10 out of 10 for me. Red Dead Redemption 2, 9 out of 10. I finished up uh, Arkham Knight. Uh, that was a good game. I think I got that for free in one of the uh, PS4 games of the month. And that was a lot of fun. I would give that game an 8 out of 10. I typically uh, do not buy brand new games. Uh, oh, the last one I did was um, Star Wars Fallen Order. That's probably been the best Star Wars a story I've seen in quite some time, and it's too bad that Star Wars fans have to see a good story in a video game and not on the not on the big screen. But Fallen Order, nine out of ten for me. If you're kind of hedging out there, wondering if it's worth the price, it definitely is, even at sixty bucks. You know, in fact, I I think I like that game better than uh, Jedi Academy. Was it Jedi Academy or? Uh, what was the game before Jedi Academy? I think it came out in 2002. Yeah, the graphics weren't as great compared to today, but the gameplay was fantastic. Let's see. I, I think it was called Jedi Outcast. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, I love Jedi Outcast. I thought that was the best Star Wars game made. Uh, but I think... Uh, did I say Jedi Outcast? Yeah, Jedi Outcast, right? Yeah, but I think Fallen Order uh, exceeded it. Exceeded, obviously, with graphics, but with gameplay. It was just a lot of fun. A lot of puzzles to solve and things like that. Just really great stuff. I I would have liked to have uh, had a little bit more force powers in in Fallen Order, but uh, given the storyline, I thought it was great. And you know what what's interesting to me about Fallen Order, and here's a little bit of spoilers, is that um, toward the end of the game, you do come across Darth Vader, and I, I can't remember the character's name that's with uh, the main protagonist of the story, but when she sees Darth Vader. 
she tells him to run. And what I thought was significant about that is in that scene where where you, you, the um, crap, what's his name? I can't remember the protagonist's name, but he does briefly fight uh, Darth Vader before he runs. But, you know, you have two Jedi Knights. They decide to run. And what I thought that did there, whether they meant to do it or not, is that it elevated, at least in the Star Wars universe anyway, it, it elevated the significance of Luke uh, fighting Darth Vader for the first time and really standing up to him because he he slaughtered every other Jedi. So I thought that was a really nice touch. And um, again, well worth the 60 bucks. That's the, that's the typical... Uh, price for any brand new game which I rarely pay for brand new games but uh, yeah I I think it was worth it absolutely so let's see anything else I want to cover any other shows let's see I saw the morning show a fantastic show 10 out of 10 for me I watched a show on Netflix called you Uh, season one was okay but boy season two was fantastic and I, I highly suggest if you're big on watching new Netflix shows check out you it's um it, it reminds me a little bit of Dexter when Dexter was good. But I'm talking strictly about season two. Season one was a little predictable. It was good, but predictable. Season two was just, I just thought it was great. I, I thought it was fantastic. And then uh, what what other show? Oh, yeah, Peaky Blinders season five came out. I think I talked about that a few months ago. And, um, and right now I'm watching this really great show on Amazon called Bosch. And it's spelled B-O-S-C-H. Really fantastic cop show that takes place in Los Angeles, uh, Hollywood division. And um, I don't know what I expected when I first uh, started the show, but but it's a fantastic show. I, I'm not familiar with the actor, the main character, but um, or the actor who plays the main character, but it's, it's a great show. I highly recommend it. So anyway, I think that's going to be it now for the after party. I'm, I'm about 15 minutes in, so we're just going to leave it here. Um, talk to you all later.